Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Do you have a vision of a new internet? I mean, I, I just think the internet itself is clearly sort of falling apart. Like, I mean, just, I, I mean, I, I think we're in a very, very weird moment where people are splintering. I mean, people, I think, in reaction to all the things we're talking about are not looking for these huge public spaces or looking for voices they trust. Often there's a lot of medium, really successful kind of, I would say, medium-sized media companies, this one included. Mm. Some of it podcasts, some of it newsletters, a lot that's going kind of directly to people who are interested in, you know, in new information and in sorting through everything that's out there. I mean, I think internet is a funny word for it. Like, I don't, I'm not sure it's all happening on the World Wide Web, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think it's a sort of much more splintered landscape in a way that we're not used to. And it means you don't always know what everybody else is talking about or thinking. And I don't know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Offline. I'm sure some of you are wondering how my week without an iPhone went. The answer is surprisingly great, but more on that later. First up is a conversation I had with Ben Smith, founder of Semaphore and former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. The last couple of weeks have felt like the end of a very specific era online. Media companies that once defined the internet, like Vice News and BuzzFeed News, have shut down. And a lot of people at other media companies have lost their jobs as well. Some of these outlets were supposed to upend legacy media as we knew it. But now the future of the entire digital media industry is at best uncertain. So what happened? How did places like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post go from digital media giants to shuttered newsrooms? And what does that mean for journalism and the internet going forward? Ben tries to answer these questions in his book Traffic by going back to the beginning of the digital media era and following the personalities and publications that set it off. He identifies the red flags the industry missed and makes what I think is a pretty persuasive case that the race to go viral and chase traffic was doomed from the start. So the two of us sat down to talk about all the ways digital media changed journalism, the last good day online, the role big platforms like Facebook played in these companies' demise, and why Ben thinks the next era of the internet is going to be very different and a lot more fractured than the one we just went through. It was a great conversation, and I was very happy to spend my phone-free week reading traffic. As always, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, please email us at offlineatcrooked.com. And stick around after the interview. Max and I float into the studio to recap our very pleasant week without iPhones and reveal what offline challenge we'll be taking on next to fight our phone addictions. Here's Ben Smith. Ben Smith, welcome to Offline. Thanks so much for having me. So my first thought when I uh, finished your book about the rise and fall of digital media is that the epilogue to the paperback edition is really going to write itself. Uh, you released Traffic in the middle of what feels like the end of the digital media era, BuzzFeed News, where you were editor-in-chief for a decade, Vice, lots of layoffs at other uh, digital and legacy media companies. You write about a lot of the red flags over the last decade, which I know are easier to see in retrospect. But do you remember when you started realizing that the industry would likely end up where it is today? 
I'm not sure I had so much foresight that I saw like this much kind of gloom and doom, but I do think it was the notion that social media, which was was the sort of ocean we were swimming in, yeah. wasn't going to work out the way we thought it would. Really, was 2016. 2016. For me. It was was I mean, cause I think it, this wasn't like a technical media thing. This was a big cultural tech shift around you know politics and society that you know, produced Donald Trump, which was a surprise to many of us. As you may recall. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I knew that was coming, of course. When did you think that the financial model that this was all based in might be in trouble? Oh, so, you know, I, I think that, like, I, I did, was a, had been a political reporter my whole career, and this is all much clearer in retrospect to me. Like, I definitely started at BuzzFeed thinking, well, like, these smart finance guys are pouring all this money in and want us to do news. That's why I'm here. And so... I wasn't going in as sort of saying, like, let me question their assumptions. But I think, you know, it wasn't so much, there were a lot, you know, many, many things went wrong. And I think there were real management mistakes that I made, that Jonah made, that could have softened the blow. Although, as you see, it's it's sort of across the ecosystem. It's not like anybody's doing great. But there was basically, like, let, there was one really big bet, which which went, which did not, which went wrong, which was that the people who were, particularly people who were investing in this new world, what they were looking at was like Viacom. They were looking at MTV, which had come, you know, some companies laid cable in the ground in the 80s and then turned around and said, we need stuff for these cables. So, like, what about, you know, there's MTV, there's ESPN, there's CNN. There's a whole new wave of great media companies that thrive in this new ecosystem. The people operating the cables don't love paying out cash to these companies every month, but get that their whole ecosystem depends on having really good distribution and really good content. And so that was the analogy that everybody investing in that digital space was thinking about. There are these new pipes, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, they're gonna last for a long time as they start to compete with each other more and more fiercely and and, and to compete with everything else in the world, they're gonna need really high quality premium content, they're gonna pay the people who make it and who make the stuff that's kind of purpose-built for them, they're gonna pay them, they're gonna need those companies to succeed so there'll be like a regular tug of war over, over revenue but ultimately, it'll be a healthy media ecosystem. And that just absolutely didn't happen in any way. Why didn't it happen? You know, I think there are two theories on this. One is that we were totally delusional. It was never going to happen. That was an insane thing to think. The other is that executives, particularly Mark Zuckerberg, thought about it and decided probably for two reasons not to do it. One is that user-generated content is free. Mm -hmm. That's great. Free is great. I mean, it's a much higher profit margin business when all your content is free. And two is that news in particular, as 2016 comes through, has become so toxic that like the notion that you as Facebook are going to try to build yourself into a news service is just inherently like a partisan exercise that gets you hauled in front of Congress some more and is an incredibly distracting thing from what you see as your core business. I mean, I do think there's a subsidiary question, which is like, has this worked out? Have the choices Facebook made worked out for them particularly well? No. Doesn't necessarily seem so, yeah. You know, and and the other social networks, like Twitter is actually, you know, as we're talking, finally doing what is becoming a media company, a television company particularly. Yeah, we're talking like an hour after the news broke that Tucker Carlson will be taking his show uh, to Twitter. How's that even going to (laughs) work? I mean, like any video thing works. You put it on a service, you charge people for it, you take a percentage of the revenue. I could imagine it being a pretty decent medium-sized business like the Daily Wire. Yeah. that'll be. Will that be like the first 
sort of political talk show that's on Twitter exclusively? Um, you know, there was a moment when Twitter was trying to, had an, an earlier iteration of Twitter. They thought maybe we'll become television, and they started syndicating television shows, AM to DM, which BuzzFeed produced when oh, I was yeah, there. Oh, yeah, that's one, right. Yeah. Which was a lighthearted and political sort of morning show, which had political elements on Twitter, engaged with Twitter. But I think as, you know, the Tucker Carlson show is a different alternative for that. But it is this incredible, incredibly scaled-down ambition, honestly, from global public square, where, by the way, everything is free, and so it's an incredible business, to, like, medium-sized conservative television network, which actually seems like a totally plausible way to go. I thought you made a fairly persuasive case in the book that, like, the ad-supported model for media companies like BuzzFeed is sort of at the core of the problem because the race for traffic in some ways was always going to lead you guys there because as more there were more companies looking for more traffic and trying to get more clicks, um, it, it just it diluted the power of each view, each click. Yeah. So does, does it, was there any alternative path for BuzzFeed looking back that you guys, you think you could have taken that would have made it more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, on, on the first point, I think, right, every, but there was this sort of core mistake that lots of media companies made in the aughts that, right, that while we're, you know, we're getting $9 for a thousand views in, in 2003 for these rudimentary ads on Gawker, like, well, and we've discovered essentially this new commodity that gives us $9 a view. And if we can create more views, we can just multiply that out and we're all going to be rich, right? Like, yeah. And then it turns out, well, that's actually not a commodity because the thing about commodities is there's a limited supply. Right. And what you have is just just a web page, you know, and then and there's infinite supply essentially, and so those numbers instead of going up start going down, and that's that is a huge problem with traffic. Although, I mean, as you guys know, as anybody's in this business knows, the advertising business is complicated. Mm-hmm. It, it's not impossible to run a media company based on advertising and other revenue, and I do think, you know, for you know BuzzFeed News in particular, like that's the thing I sort of fault myself most for in retrospect should have pivoted pretty hard toward a different kind of business. You know, news companies that do advertising present themselves to advertisers differently, basically, than big entertainment companies. And that's something we didn't figure out while I was there. Early on in the book, um, you have this quote from Gawker founder Nick Denton from years and years ago. He said, you can't pretend to yourself that people actually have highfalutin taste. Nobody ever searches for inequality in America. This is something you come back to a few times in the book sort of the old media practice of determining what audiences ought to like versus giving them what they actually like. How do you think about that balance now? Like, do you think the digital media era swung the pendulum too far towards just giving people what they want? You know, it's, you know, obviously media has always felt this push and pull. And there's always, I mean, the great, one of the great origin stories of American newspaper journalism, the New York Sun, their breakthrough moment was this, the moon hoax in which they published a series of stories yeah. saying that they had found flying humans on the moon. I mean, and um, basically, and um, you have to correct, I may have misstated that slightly. <laughs> um, it's not like the internet invented the pressure to pander to your audience and make stuff up. It's just like, it, you've been flying without instruments, and mm. suddenly, like you could, you just could exquisitely see exactly what people wanted and what they didn't. And you know, to a point, that's valuable. You don't want to be writing stuff people don't read. You want to be writing things people are interested in. And I think I always felt in that ecosystem. I'm sure made lots of mistakes, but what we were trying to do was sort of be conscious and thoughtful about what people wanted, but not follow it to its logical conclusion. Basically, right. Yeah, that's well that I mean it is tough now that I 
have a media company. Yeah. Because <laughs> I could complain about this a lot when I was on the political side. But, you know, we can tell when we do Pod Save America, right? Like, there's big Trump news and you put Trump in the headline and you talk a lot about Trump. Like, that's going to get uh, a lot of people are going to listen to that. But then there's like, well, there's a whole bunch of other important things happening in the world. There's a lot of things happening in states under the radar that we want people to know about. And so I feel like it's a constant sort of push and pull between like, okay, we know that the audience wants this and this is fun and it needs to be somewhat entertaining and people need to listen to it or else, you know, they're never going to digest it. But then you're also like, I can't just, we can't give them all fun stuff because, you know, well, it, for us, we have a mission, right? That we're trying to... uh make sure people understand what the what the problems are in the country and what they can do to fix them. But like, how often do you, how often did you think about that when you were at BuzzFeed? Like, cause obviously you guys did some fantastic journalism while you were there. And how did you, how did you deal with figuring out like, I, I have all this data about what's going viral, what's working versus I actually want to do a story about this and maybe it won't be as exciting for some people. Yeah, we thought about it all the time and we're trying to balance it all the time. And there was, but the thing is, when, you know, when I started in 2012, there was this it's two or three year period where I think you could fool yourself into thinking, or maybe not fool yourself, maybe it was true for a minute. Huh, like Twitter in particular is this incredibly like glorious new frontier for news where people who care a lot about news are on there scouring for new information. And if you break a story, it'll go viral. It'll travel a lot. And so scoops, which are a very, you know, essentially news, yeah. is a great way to feed that beast and get traffic and, you know, build audience and your brand. And you're not really making compromises. What you're doing is telling people something new. I think that as Facebook really became the only and central platform, it was never a place. I mean, it was a place where the where where the most extreme versions of telling people what they wanted to hear did best. The most and the purest version of that was like the Macedonian teenagers with a fake website telling people that Hillary Clinton had been replaced by a body double. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Um, we spent a lot of time on this show debating um, how much these social media algorithms are affecting human behavior and how much they're just reflecting human behavior. Like, where do you come down on that? Uh, I come to, uh, yes, I would say yes to that question. <laughs> I mean, I do think, I think, you know, in a big picture way, I think when you look, particularly the big story that people talk about in this context is the rise of Donald Trump. Yeah. I think there was a period in the, you know, late 2016, early 2017, when a lot of people really came to believe that not just Facebook, but Cambridge Analytica and some slightly hard to explain and mysterious dark arts around Facebook had gotten Donald Trump elected. Right. I think you look at how enduring his appeal is and the fact that people like Donald Trump got elected in countries all over the world. And clearly there was a real surge of right-wing populism that was not about like micro-technical things happening in the United States or on the Trump campaign, but it was also definitely wound around Facebook in lots of different places. Again, not totally, not every country has the same Facebook penetration. I don't think, I don't think you can like just say, oh, history has this one cause, but you know, but it was certainly that kind of right-wing populism was incredibly well adapted to Facebook because, you know, it was, it was, it was the things that social media was sort of good at, which is tearing down institutions and sort of giving a signal of of where an angry group of people wants to go, and and you know, and and it gave politicians and publishers who wanted to go there this very clear signal to follow, which I think you know Trump and Breitbart say followed. Yeah, I was wondering about this because you know you sort of end the book and you say you know at this point the internet had become merely society itself, the forces that had come to dominate it, populism to the right and the left most of all were social forces, not digital ones. 
And I do wonder because throughout the rest of the book, you've written about how, you know, there are specific decisions made by people at social media platforms and digital media companies that really supercharge that populism, especially right wing populism, as part of this competition for attention. And I want like those decisions seem like. Yeah, I think. No, I think those decisions really matter. I mean, I think you're asking me sort of where are we now? I mean, I think that's that's. You're not, it's, these things aren't easily disentangled, but they were certainly particularly at Facebook and to some degree at Twitter and particularly in like 2015, 16, 17, 18, there are these specific choices. To essentially, first to say, well, let's, you know, let's, let's amplify the stuff people are hitting like on. If, if, you know, if you like this, then she'll probably like this and, we'll, and we'll, so we'll show it to her even though her friends didn't share it and things. And, and the problem was that that produced, you know, Hillary Clinton's body double. And so Facebook is then like, well, this doesn't quite work. How about like engagement? Now, we, we want to have people have not just some drive-by interaction with the headline. We want people who are meaningfully engaged with yeah. this content. And so what that means is you share a Trump meme. I write, kill yourself 17 times in a row. And the system is like, this is some profound engagement. This is great. Let's show it to everyone. And that really did, I think, help drive division, I think particularly racial division. Yeah. I think there was a kind of content that was like a, and BuzzFeed would sometimes do identity posts about, you know, what it's like to grow up Persian in New Jersey was one, right? Like very like specific that were kind of fun in jokes for a community. And then like for their friends, you know, kind of an insight into them growing up in New Jersey. You take that and you show it to everyone and you maybe in, you know, in other contexts in more racially charged sort of context. And People outside that in circle of the inside joke see it as a racist attack on them. Mm-hmm. Comment to that effect. The algorithm is like, this is great. Let's show it to more people. And I do think, I mean, we definitely, there's a, in, in the book, there's a, you know, Jonah Spreddy, the, the CEO of BuzzFeed, had a running conversation with the people, with Zuckerberg and the people running Facebook in 2018, kind of an urgent email to them saying, the only stuff that is traveling on Facebook is content that can be misinterpreted as racist. And is being taken as racist, and that's that's what works on Facebook now. I've talked to so many people about this, and you know, I think there's an idea. A lot of liberals think this sometimes. Oh, if we just tweak the algorithms, like we can fix this. Everybody problem. will just calm right down. Right, and then you talk to people, and they're like, "Well, a lot of times, Facebook did tweak the algorithm, just as you as you talked about over the years. First, they prioritize sharing engagement." And it seems like every time someone tries to tweak the algorithm, there's some unintended consequence that makes it even worse or, or presents a series of different problems. I talked to Charlie Warzel, who I know you know very well, and he was like, I just don't think people are meant to be connected at this scale, just period. Do you think that? I think that most people now think that, right? Like these, these systems are falling apart. I think people yeah. like trying it out, this thing where we're all in the same giant room screaming at each other at the top of our lungs and thought that was fun for a while. And that the culture has clearly sort of moved on and rejected it mostly. And people are retreating to smaller spaces. And I think that, I don't know, they didn't like the thing before either, where we just got our news from the New York Times and they had screwed up the Iraq war coverage, right? Like, right. It's, I mean, I think it's easy to say. It's, it's like easy a, to, the pendulum swings Yeah, the one pendulum way or the swings other. and yeah. you're reacting to what society actually wants. You talked about uh, the Internet's last good day, which was uh, involved the famous dress. Is it blue or black or white and gold? Why was that such a big deal for BuzzFeed? And I found it very interesting. 
why was Facebook so concerned about the dress going viral? Yeah, that day was March of 15, I guess. And I would say like the other th- great thing that happened that day, if any of your listeners recall, was that some llamas got loose in, I in Arizona. I until I read it in your and, book. And, and, we, and we all just sort of gathered around <laughs> and watched these hapless police officers chase them around. But right, so what was... This was essentially like a fun and harmless piece of popular culture that began when a woman goes to a, a, a wedding, I, I believe in like Western Scotland, hmm. comes home with a picture of, of somebody wearing a dress and she and her mom have a disagreement about what color the dress is, which feels insane. And so she sends a Tumblr message to BuzzFeed to say, hey, can you sort this out for us? Mm-hmm. And the woman who's running our social media takes a look at it and is and everyone's gathered around her computer arguing about it. And so she thinks, ah, we'll show this to our readers and post this thing. And it... Within, I mean, what I remember, a colleague of mine was giving a speech in Jakarta and like an hour after it was published and he got off stage, he was like, all anybody was asking me about was this dress that you published in New York an hour earlier. <laughs> and it was this instant moment of global culture that everyone was talking about. And it was, all, it was like one of these kind of fun, scientific brain teasery things, like very yeah. d- divisive in the most literal sense. Like two thirds of people saw it one way, one third the other. People like to argue about it. All those Facebook mechanisms that like feed off division. Loved it, but it was totally harmless and delightful. Yeah, like divisive in the best sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like like sports, right? right? Yeah, like like yeah. one of these cultural conflicts where we can, you know. Anyway, very fun, and we just thought like this is great. Like this is a new kind. This is like the culmination, not the culmination. A beautiful example of this new global digital culture where everybody around the world is talking about the same stuff in a totally lovely, harmless way. And a bit later, Jonah runs into a senior person at Facebook and says, "Wasn't you know basically wasn't that cool?" And they said to him, how, how often do you think we should let that happen? Which, you know, was, of course, a reminder of like, oh, they were let that, letting yeah. it happen, right? Yeah. But also, I think if you were working at that company, you were it wasn't just that you were tweaking the dials here and tweaking them there and manipulating society. Mostly, you were tweaking the dials here, tweaking the dials there and like staring into the abyss and wondering what would happen next, right? This is a this vast system with everyone on it that is, you know, not really under your control as an algorithm. I mean, you can tweak the dials, but it's not totally, I'm like, like the Fed managing the economy. You tweak the dials, like you wait eight months and see, we'll see, what, see what happens. happens. Yeah. I did look back at that and I was thinking, is there a version of the internet? Can we ever get back to someplace where we're arguing over fun stuff like that? Silly stuff like that? Like what, what happened? <laughs> I, get, I mean, obviously yeah. that was 2015. So Donald Trump's. I mean, society actually got a lot more divided society and angrier. Divided. Yeah, but I do think there are corners of the internet. I mean, I think Reddit is remains a very like interesting yeah. counterexample to everything else that happened on social media. Society definitely got more divisive, but I do think that this is part of what caused it. Like, I think that all of us being online all the time, yeah, and specifically social media, and the fact that we're seeing tweets and posts that don't have context and we're hearing the loudest voices amplified and the most divisive content amplified. Like when people's information diet is constantly all of this garbage, why wouldn't we be a more divided society? Yeah. And there's a mechanism that I think of as more Twitter than Facebook, but where that is basically you're constantly shown the stupidest version of what your enemies think. Like the most extreme and insane thing that conservatives say is no doubt constantly at the top of your Twitter feed I'm, in I'm a t- screenshot from someone you've never heard of. Yes. And it, it makes it, in, in the political realm, I think it makes it more difficult for people to understand like what's on voters' minds because yeah. people who tend to spend a lot of time online and, and consume a lot of news only are exposed to 
like Democratic partisans with super strong views, Republican partisans with super strong and, and the extremes on both sides. And they actually don't know that most voters have like super complicated views and they have like cross-cutting ideologies and some of them don't pay much attention to news and so some of them don't have opinions at all. And so you start to think that the other side is like constantly at war with you and the partisans are, but majority of the people in the country, majority of voters in the country just like don't really think about this stuff. Right. Often. Yeah. I'm obviously, you know, interested in the political implications of the digital media era. You write that you hadn't realized until you started reporting for this book the extent to which uh, right-wing populism was always looking over the shoulder of the progressive internet scene learning its lessons. What lessons do you think right-wing populists learn from uh, progressives? So, I mean, I think you have to sort of get your head back to the that early, you know, the 2000 to 2010 in New York where all these people were Huffington Post, maybe the purest version. They have like a meeting after the 04 election, like we cannot lose again yeah. and create this website that is largely winds up being an arm of the Obama campaign, basically. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of I would say, like, broadly, these are young people on the Internet. So, of course, they support Barack Obama. That's his demographic. like right. You know, and so and it's taken almost for granted that the internet is a pro-Obama place. You know, Obama visits Facebook in 2011. He doesn't have to say, I'm here because you get out Democratic votes. Like college kids are on Facebook. It's like visiting a campus. Like, yeah. of course, they get out, you know. Well, we were, we were in the uh, demographics or destiny era. Yes, <laughs> yes. When I went back to report out the book, what kind of like actually surprised me was, wow, all of not just the ideas, but like the people who would be central to the next decade. And I think when you look back this whole era of the internet, you know, the founder of 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's office. Andrew Breitbart co-founds HuffPost. Steve Bannon is very interested and involved in looking over the sh shoulder of all this stuff. Gavin McInnes, who created the Proud Boys, is the co-founder of Vice. Like, these aren't incidental characters, and it's not sort of incidental that they're there. But I think we, who were in the sort of mainstream media, thought we were the main story. And I, and But the thing is, like, Obama-era liberalism like had a little populist edge. But, you know, the Dean campaign was populist. But it was not a... It was not a follow the populist energy to its logical conclusion movement at all. It was like, just drink deeply enough to get yourself elected and then let's, you know, go talk to Tim Geithner. So, I, mean, I don't mean if you object here, but... um, <laughs> But so... To but, talk to my, my buddy Tim Geithner like that. <laughs> but I think the thing about that next decade is Steve Bannon, Breitbart, like really see that these measures of traffic, this, these notions about like thinking about content in terms of like what can you make that people will be most likely to post to Facebook... That if you just follow the heat to its logical extreme, you know, that the, the and, and if you don't, and if you take the sort of other cues that go with this kind of right-wing populism, you are anti-institutional sort of by nature. You lie in order to provoke a reaction to your lies. You know, you sort of are transgressive in this deliberate way that is meant to signal that you're like w not with the in crowd. You're one of, you know, this is very like set of things that aren't really about Facebook. They're about this style of politics, but just sync up so well with social media. And we, you know, BuzzFeed, we were always, we could see, for instance, that Bernie Sanders got more traffic than Hillary Clinton, but also we were professional journalists and we weren't going to like torque what we were writing. We might write more about him if people right. were really interested, but we're not going to just, you know, we're not going to lie about her and lie about him in order to get more traffic. Breitbart had no problem doing that. Breitbart just followed that signal to straight to its logical conclusion. And I think basically, you know, inherited the earth in a way because they were just totally committed to this style of communication in a way that everybody who had sort of helped create it and think about it and build all the dashboards didn't really want to think through the conclusion. I actually thought about that with how you, how you wrote about Gawker. Like to me, the attitude 
that that fueled Gawker and Denton at the beginning, which was very like, let's get rid of the gatekeepers, let's take on institutions, smash hierarchies. That kind of there was a populism to that. Oh yeah, and Andrew Breitbart had created his sites based on Gawker, like that was the model. And and I and I was thinking about like that because taken to its logical extreme, you get to either sort of the right-wing extremism of uh, of Benny Johnson or Baked Alaska that you write about, or just the nihilism that was sort of late-stage Gawker, in a way. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, Gawker did, again, really did in some ways follow that to this, pretty this ideology just of exposing everything, of ripping the mask off everything. Just taking it all down, just burning it all down. And there is a sort of very literal sense in which the logical conclusion of that is sex tapes. It's funny, I worked for, I ran into a woman last night here who, great reporter, former reporter, whose first job was at Defamer, their site called Defamer. I mean, it was like they were obviously playing with fire, but... Um, yeah, I, just, I always had an issue with that because, you know, I know there was a lot of like, oh, we're so sad Gawker's gone. And I, th- I think they did some good stuff, but there was a lot of... Um, sometimes I think there was meanness that was justified as like, oh, we're just taking on power. And it's important to take on power and hold power accountable and take on institutions. But sometimes it was just like, it seemed like they were just doing it for fun, which which became what, I mean, this is yeah. what a lot of the right-wing media I mean, it's, it's, assholes do now. It's complicated because obviously they did sometimes take on power, and they, but they did it in sort of sometimes stupid, mean ways. Like they were mean to Peter Thiel about being gay. Right. And he then developed an insane secret conspiracy to destroy them that helped lead to their destruction. I mean, what's the lesson of that? I don't know. Um, I had forgotten until you written about the but that CFO that they right they, and that, right the sort of the end point of it in a way or one of the end points was exposing really a totally random mid level or mid senior employee of Condé Nast which is not a major important American company yeah that he was like having you know that he was doing stuff in his personal life that was embarrassing right I mean, who cares and and yeah and I think that was sort of a I think part of it was was sort of, it's one thing like in early, early Gawker days, you know, they had a staff of like one or two mostly young women who were total outsiders to New York, great writers, captured the moment, did like weird stuff like sneaking into the Condé Nast cafeteria and writing about what it was like, but they were outsiders. They had no power. These media companies they were making fun of had enormous power. It felt like that. There's something that's sort of acceptable. The media companies that they're attacking and the other institutions like start to like fall apart. Yeah, they get more powerful and important. And suddenly, like, what are you doing? Like, you're just being mean. <laughs> you know, right. you're not punching up. Not that you should just necessarily be punching in any case. You uh, you end the book with sort of a a big question that I think about all the time, which is uh, over this decade, sort of faith in every institution has been degraded and and, and partly as a result of of some of these forces that you write about. And so you have a public that has very little faith in institutions and yet is demanding that those same institutions explain what's going on in the world around them with accuracy and truth. Like, how do we get out of that? Have you thought about like, what what do you do to sort of, uh, you know, get people's faith in institutions back? I mean, I don't know, but that is, I mean, to me, that was sort of my slightly like surprising to me conclusion because I had spent my whole career like on the outside. I mean, you know, I'm like, I know you were always working for the greater glory of the Democratic Party. Of course. But, but a lot of people <laughs> of our generation were, were skeptical of institutions. And I mean, yeah, actually, in a lot of your career was, you know, I mean, the Obama campaign was. Yeah, like, we were there, pretty yeah, skeptical. I mean, there was ourselves. a lot of, but certainly I came up looking at the sort of mainstream media and thinking, wow, these people have are totally disconnected from how people communicate on the internet in the early 2000s. And 
they've totally blown the biggest story of our lives. Right. So why should we have any confidence in them? And I think you, you know, you, I think, I think, but but it's also obviously just totally evident that the crisis of this moment is in part about this total lack of faith in all institutions, many of which are failing people. But I don't know. I mean, I think you at least it's sort of weird to say out loud, like, I'm really excited about institutions. That's, that's not <laughs> well, the, that's not something anybody really gets excited about. But it obviously, to some degree, is like the project for people of our generation, right, to try to build new ones and also find ways to kind of patch up the old ones, right? It's, to I the think, degree possible. I think it's the, the biggest challenge there is. It's especially, I think, a challenge for progressives, for, for Democrats, because we're the people who are trying to build institutions or, or, or have people make sure that people have faith in institutions because for progressivism to work, like government has to work and stuff like that. Um, but the easiest, from a political standpoint, the easiest campaign to run is a purely populist campaign where you start yelling about CEOs and elites and rich people and all the kind of, like that's an populism works politically. And a lot of these institutions really haven't adapted to a media environment really broadly where you just can't hide stuff so well anymore, where if you screw up, everybody sees it. And it's not, I mean, I think about this with media institutions. I was, you know, I started my career, my first gig after college was the Indianapolis Star in the mm. summer of 99. And, you know, if there was, and I was covering murder, I was on the, I was on the cop's desk and, if somebody, you know, if somebody, there was a murder, you would get some partial information. You might have the wrong name of the person. You might have the wrong address. You might have the wrong victim's name, the wrong killer's name. You might have the method. You might have everything wrong. And you're running around trying to get all this stuff and you're going knocking on the wrong door or the wrong house and like having some really awful conversation with strangers. And, but by the end of the day, you've pieced most of this together and the police have gotten their acts together and given you some information. And the story that runs the next day, you read the story and you're like, oh, these people really know what they're doing. But now... It's like you see journalists running around like idiots all day trying to figure out what was going on, just like you. And regular people can often do a better job because there's nothing, no magic to it. And you're like, wow, these people are all idiots. And in fact, the truth is we were always all idiots. It's yeah. just you couldn't see it. And I think that's true of the CDC, of most of these institutions. Yeah. And I don't know how you kind of reestablish faith in these things that never really deserved the faith that was put in them in the first place, right? No, and it's, look, when I'm when we're explaining something that's happening in government on the pod because and we're giving our perspective like as, as people who are in government you always feel like an asshole trying to defend the institution because yeah. the frustration is legitimate it's real a lot of it is warranted with uh, a lot of the skepticism is warranted and i think the question is how you keep the skepticism healthy and keep it from turning into cynicism because then if, if it's cynicism then it's like well it's all a game and it's rigged and who cares and i'm never going to trust the media and i'm never going to trust government and that's that but if you keep it if you keep a healthy skepticism then you're holding power accountable but you're getting people to still yeah, believe right, that, that it's it's, that it's media, possible for it to work yeah that in media and government these are a bunch of idiots like you who are mostly trying to do their best and occasionally getting things done right yes. right uh you wrote at the end of the book about uh nick denton's vision of a new internet uh do you have a vision of a new internet I mean, I think the notion, I mean, I, I just think the internet itself is clearly sort of falling apart. Like, I mean, just, I, I mean, I, I think we're in a very, very weird moment where people are splintering. I mean, people, I think, in reaction to all the things we're talking about are not looking for these huge public spaces or looking for voices they trust. Often there's a lot of medium, really successful kind of, I would say, medium-sized media companies, this one included. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of it podcasts, some of it newsletters, a lot that's going kind of directly to people who are interested in 
you know, in new information and in sorting through everything that's out there. And at Semaphore, that's sort of what we're trying to do, too, is to build around individual voices, to, you know, to not project our views as the only possible view, but to include sort of a lot of different points of view and interpretations of shared facts. But I don't, I mean, I think internet is a funny word for it. Like, I don't, I'm not sure it's all happening on the World Wide Web, yeah. I think. You know, I think yeah, I think it's a sort of much more splintered landscape in a way that we're not used to, and it means you don't always know what everybody else is talking about or thinking. And I don't know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. It's honestly, I don't think it is the worst thing in the world. Just having um, been off my phone for a week as part of part of a challenge for this podcast, I was like, usually before uh, Positive America on Thursday, I'm like spending like four or five hours before the pod, just like ingesting every piece of information and every take that I can. And I didn't do that on last Thursday because I didn't have my phone. And instead, I just like sat quietly and thought about the news and what I thought about the news. And it was fine. And in some ways, it was better. I was like, oh, maybe I don't have to synthesize every single take that's out there or read every single piece of news. And I do wonder if we're like heading into an era where there's a little less connection, a little less of us being online all the time, and if that's a good thing. It certainly feels that way to me. I mean, I've noticed in my weird little obsessive world of people who are obsessed with scoops, which is my personal community, um, that I, you know, it used to be there was this central scoreboard where you kind of knew who got broke which story, and I was sending furious emails last week off because my colleague Louise Matsakis had broken a great story about Chinese internet companies and nobody had credited her. And then as I was doing that, noticed that I had just published a story by Max Tani, a great scoop, I thought, about a media company. And in fact, somebody else had broken it an hour earlier and we hadn't noticed because that system of like you are seeing everything all the time on a single scoreboard is sort of fragmenting and fracturing and harder to use and you go to I mean Twitter was sort of the scoreboard now you go there and you just it's just talking about itself and sometimes it's actually like extremely entertaining and interesting and riveting but it's really about what happens in late stage sort of apocalyptic Twitter not what's happening in the Middle East and what's happening in media and what's happening in the world and I think yeah I don't know I, I sort of agree I don't you know I don't know what's healthier what's unhealthier like the world could certainly get worse yeah but certainly it's in reaction to what we all just went through um what do you think the most sustainable business model is for journalism move, moving forward do you think it's subscription so I have is... such strong views on this and they're so boring I, I, I'm, I'm interested. having been doing this a long time and my partner Justin Smith probably the most successful entrepreneur in this and it is diversified revenue if you look at okay. Disney what business is Disney in? They have 13 business lines. They like manage them all very carefully. Parks is great. I mean, I think that news in particular is a really tough business. And 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 you should have very strong views about what journalism is, what you're producing, how you connect to your readers, and be very, very agnostic about where the money comes from as long as it doesn't compromise the journalism. And uh, I, think, I think people, you've seen people get themselves into trouble by being like, I believe in subscriptions the way like I believe in God. I don't know. You know, like it's just a way of, it's a business model. And, and the successful companies over the years have mixed models. And it's a very boring answer, but it's actually like- It's, it's a good, no. Slightly, as a, I've, I've been the, thinking about it yeah. a lot. So um, why'd you leave the New York Times to start Semaphore? Um so many reasons. I mean, I love the New York Times and they were great to me. I was the media columnist for the New York Times. Extremely weird, great column. extremely weird job, right? Like you mm-hmm. wake up every morning, punch one of your friends in the face. <laughs> I mean, how long you want to do that? Um, and I mean, it's very weird to cover your own world. It's enough yeah. to, you know, cause trouble among people you don't know that well. But also, you know, I had this, I had been at BuzzFeed and sort of felt that something was ending and not really been able to put my finger on it. And then, um, 
you know, been finally at the times throwing stones at other people's glass houses, but also peering inside them. And did you could sort of see the how dramatic the change is and how people are connecting to the news. And it reminded me a little actually of how much things were changing in the early, that early period I was writing about. And so I was writing this book and writing these columns and thinking like, oh, it's, it does feel like another moment when pe- what people want is so different from what they had wanted before. And mm. there's an opportunity to do something new. So what's the big pitch for Semaphore? It's really to, to answer these two questions, like I feel, which are I feel to, which I think is how I feel and how I think most people feel, totally overwhelmed by the amount of incoming, yeah. and not sure who to trust. Mm. And so we want to, you know, organize around great reporters who really know what they're talking about on specific beats, whether it's like Steve Clemens or Kadia Goba in Washington, Liz Hoffman, politics, me and Max Tanny in media, and then be really, really transparent about here are the facts, here's my take on the facts, and here's a reasonable alternative point of view on these facts, and here's how they see the same thing from China and here, or from Africa, and here's, you know, and to try to give people uh, give people that sense of here's, here's a smart, efficient way to get a really sophisticated point of view on this moment, rather than, I read a story in a newspaper, I think it's probably like 80% true, but I'm then going to go Google 11 other stories on the same topic to try to figure out what's really going on and triangulate it, which is like a terrible thing to have to do that everyone does all the time. Yeah. I do think that curation is going to be like very important going forward just with the volume of information. And especially as like Twitter seems to be, I don't even want to say it's dying. It just seems like a mess. I I find that I like if if I want to know what's going on, I used to just go to Twitter and I'd like have a list. That, and now there's fewer people tweeting and it's always about Elon or it's about something else. Yeah. So now I'm going back to like, I gotta go to the New York Times and the Post and CNN and Politico and like, and yeah. go to all the different sites. And yeah, I'm like, you should sign up for our flagship morning newsletter. I do, I do. And, but, I, I, but in general, that really, we want to take, and I mean, this is funny because I mean, everything in media, it's not, we're not in that complicated a business. Nothing is truly new in media. And I mean, I, when I came up, you know, blo- blogging was doing was I'm going to read all the newspapers and pull out the part that you didn't see in the L.A. Yeah. Times and bring it to you. And I think that is a really sophisticated, smart, global curation is a really valuable service sort of co-equal with original reporting that we're doing a lot of. Ben Smith, thanks for coming to Offline. Uh, the book is Traffic. It's fantastic. Everyone uh, check it out. It's a uh, it's a great, great story about the uh, the last decade of digital media. So thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, John. Congratulations on dropping your phone. Thanks. <laughs> Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. 
Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. All right, we're back. And I'm here with uh, with Max Fisher. John, we did it. We did it. We kind of did it. The week is over. Uh, we have our flip phones here. Yep. Useless yep. piece of shit. <laughs> not not really good for any kind of phoning. Hard what, to believe we what, as a society ran off of these things. For, should we remind people what we did this week? Yeah. So for all of you who you know didn't hear last week, sure. uh, for the last week, Max and I traded in our iPhones for flip phones. To break up with our smartphones. To break up with our smartphones. Get over the addictions. And you know, finally put our money where our mouth is. And... Uh, how did you feel? I, how, do you, how do you feel? Um, so I actually did not walk into the studio. I floated in on a cloud <laughs> of air. I've reached such a level. I'm opening and closing doors with my mind. You really, was, you've really adapted well to Los Angeles. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, Just popped in from Earth Bar. That's right. it, yeah. Honestly, it was so much easier and so much more beneficial than I thought it was going to be. I really thought this week was going to be like day one or two. We were going to break. We were going to be cheating all over the place. We're going to be walking around with my laptop as like a smartphone yeah. substitute, like all over Twitter, and then come out of this and be like, that was impossible, but we learned some things. But like, I really loved it. Same. I was really happy. And after like, I don't know about you, but um, the first day was hard. Actually, what was, what was the first like day for you? Like The, the first day for me... Well, it was weird because we went right from the recording. Just I like went back into the office and worked. back into the world. Back yeah. into the world, and so at my desk here, I still have my laptop. For the purposes of this experiment, voluntarily also gave up my iPad. I didn't really announce that, but I was like, huh. it's, "It's stupid to be using yeah, my iPad yeah, if yeah. I'm not," you know. But I did keep my laptop, obviously, as you did. And so for the rest of the day here at the office, it was. Not very noticeable, except when I went up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I stood up to go to the bathroom, and then I walked to the yep. walked to the bathroom yep. back with no phone. The first couple times I did that, I was like, "Whoa, what's happening?" You really notice forty five seconds without yeah. your smartphone. Immediately, yeah. you start to feel it. Immediately, yeah. can I tell you the very first thing I did walking out of the studio? Uh -huh. I was like, "I'm going to go out to lunch and like take my Kindle and read and live my new enlightened life." I walked into the elevator. And the very first thing I did totally involuntarily was reach into my pocket, pull out the flip phone and check the screen. There's nothing on the screen. I, it is a flip phone. Well, the, so the first day I didn't have a flip phone because um, uh, we couldn't get the SIM card out of my iPhone because they don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to get me like a, a, a phone with a, a burner uh, phone yeah, with a new yeah. number. So for the first day, I had nothing to check. Second day, I had exactly your experience where I, I went home from work early, partly because I finished my work 
so early. I had blocked out like wow. two hours to do something that took me a half hour because I didn't have my phone. Oh my God. That's one thing. What were you, so you, because normally you would be checking your phone so often? Yeah. 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 And so I got home. No one was there except my dog. Took Leo for a walk. Uh, it was about like, you know, 30 minute walk. And during that, so I was just, just me and Leo. Wasn't listening yeah. to anything. What wasn't were any, you thinking about? Uh, lots of stuff. But what I did was I checked. I pulled this fucking flip phone <laughs> out of my pocket like eight times to check it. Yep, me there too. There was nothing to check. Yep. The yep. only person who has the number was Emily, and I had just talked to her. Yep. So, like, there was nothing to check. I was literally browsing the um, settings just to have, just, <laughs> I didn't go that Just far. to feel something. That's funny. Just to, but I, so I thought that was going to be the whole week. By, like, day three... I, I, I it, like completely broke. I was not thinking about the smartphone. I was turned it off. I had it stashed away. I was going outside sometimes without either phone because, like you said, the flip phone is completely useless. Yep. And I not even just it, the, the effect went beyond even just the smartphone. It wasn't even just that I completely lost the urge and the impulse to check it. I even noticed when I was on my laptop, I was not doing as much time wasting on Twitter or, I or did, Facebook. Same thing. Wasn't spending as much time on the group texts. Uh, I focused like immediately, went way faster, came back to me. I blew through like three issues of The New Yorker. I watched a movie, one of my favorite movies over the weekend, and like paid attention through the whole thing, which I have not been able to do for years. It took four or five days. It's wild. Yeah, I'll, I'll go through what was enjoyable, what was somewhat difficult, sure. and like what I couldn't do again. Yeah. So thoroughly enjoyable, every social situation. Like, to say that I didn't miss it at all is like an understatement. Like, it was joyful not having it. And there were a couple different levels of social situation. So, like, uh, the first thing that happened is Emily and I drove to dinner. Love it was at the dinner as well and another friend of ours. And um, she drove, and it was like a 20-minute drive to the dinner. And the whole time in the car, where, like, both of us or one of us, depending if we're driving or taking an Uber, is on our phone. We just talked the entire time. Had a nice, lovely conversation. Talking to your partner. Talking to my partner. Wow. Uh, the whole dinner. Uh, Lovett didn't notice I didn't have the phone until the very end of the dinner when we were outside. Uh, <laughs> would you Would you normally be checking your phone during dinner? Not like if there was a lull in the conversation or if I went to the bathroom during dinner, <laughs> I would check my phone. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, but uh, we were standing outside the restaurant and Emily and Lovett were on their phones and... Uh, and I was just standing there. I had so many, <laughs> so many moments of seeing other people's addictive behavior, which like I didn't need another way in my life to feel smug about other people. <laughs> well, that I did that to. So Friday night, Emily and I watched a television show and uh, the season premiere of the other two. Fantastic show. And I noticed she was on her phone the whole time and I'm watching it. And then the next day we're talking to people about this show and Emily's like, I don't know if I loved the first episode of the new season. I was like, you were on your <laughs> you phone see it. the entire yeah. time. Yeah. The entire time. But everybody does that. You don't realize how much you're missing checking your phone. And you don't realize how I didn't even notice until I went to watch this movie and got to the one hour mark and was kind of like, oh, I would be pausing the movie right about now to like get some dopamine hits. But actually, I'm having a lovely time. Same. And social situations, social situations with close friends and like Emily, like. That's not – usually I don't, I'm not checking my phone all the time during there. Some of them listening right now might laugh or roll their eyes, but you, most of the time. And I should say usually when we're podcasting, you're on your phone the, the whole entire time. time. Right? Yeah, yeah, not you're not listening to you a word that I'm all. saying. Yeah. But then there were – I had like uh, Charlie has like a kid's soccer thing that happens at our house Saturday mornings. 
and it goes for like a half hour, but then people stay. So there was like a whole bunch of parents and kids there. It was like four hours that are at our house. And I was like the most conversational <laughs> and I was just enjoying it, mm-hmm. talking to everyone, playing with the kids, having a great time. Saturday night, we went to some function. Again, I didn't even bring any phone to the function and like met a bunch of new people, wow. which is also, always, you know, yeah. me meeting new people at this stage. I'm like, eh. I know. But <laughs> so um, once you get to that four, it's kind of over. Well, you know what it is, is like, it's not that I would not go up and talk to new people. It's between conversations when you're at a function like that. One thing I, I do as a crutch sure. is like check my phone while I'm waiting for the next conversation, which now I realize sort of breaks up uh, your focus and ability to like go socialize. And because I, I couldn't do that, I mm-hmm. was just like, I found myself in more conversations and I just felt better. Yes, I noticed that too. And I think it's also the things that take a little bit more effort. Yeah. I, you just have, you have 20%, 30% more focus when you are not on your phone during the day. Mm-hmm. And those things like starting a conversation with a new person that normally might feel like a little bit too much work, it's a little too hard to get invested in, it suddenly feel a lot easier. I was noticing that over and over. And something else that I was doing is I would be like at home and start to feel that like little pull of boredness where normally I would pull out the phone, but instead I would call someone and say like, let's go get coffee. Let's go get a drink. So I was doing just way more socializing generally. Oh, you use the phone <laughs> yeah. as, it, as, it, as it was once intended. As, as an actual, which let me tell you, freaks people <laughs> really out. They like, what happened? Did somebody die? I said, no, just my smartphone. I was going to say that the, the toughest times, though this got easier as the week went on, was... Uh, when I was by myself, that was where the addiction was real. You know, I've talked to my therapist about this, of course, but <laughs> sitting around, I was just like, uh, what do I do? What do I do? I'm going to be and like working out every day because I'm used to listening to a podcast or music while I work out or having the TV on in the background. Silent workouts. <laughs> First, I was like, how's this going to go? Yeah. Honestly, by and I didn't know that today, yeah. I was like, this is great. Yeah. And, was, and I learned after the week, I'm like, ah, I'm not so bad to be with just myself. <laughs> My own yeah. thoughts aren't that scary. That's, it's why I have always used cycling as like something to treat smartphone addiction because you're, you can't use it because you're using both of your hands and it's silent and you're just kind of with yourself. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask what, what the moments were where you either cheated or felt the strongest pull to cheat because maybe that tells you something about like where the addiction is coming from. So... Um, I never cheated in terms of really social media, texting, all that kind of stuff. Well, you beat me. Where I technically cheated was every morning, mm-hmm. um, Emily sleeps later than I do, and I leave the house to walk to Starbucks, as everyone laughed about last time. And um, so I have to turn off the alarm system in our house, and I have to do that from my phone. Right. So I turned on the phone, and then... I like sometimes it was like raining a couple days and so I needed to Postmates the Starbucks. Sure. So I used Postmates on my phone once. And then like uh, when Emily was out of the house and Charlie was sleeping, I needed to use the Nanit app, which is like the monitor. So I used that. That's about it. Oh, and the, oh, and then yeah, you know what? Here's one. Yesterday I interviewed for this podcast, for this episode, mm-hmm. Ben Smith, and he just wrote this new book and he's done a ton of press interviews and usually the way I prep for offline interviews, for Pod Save America stuff, is mm-hmm. to like just consume as much information as possible about the topic. And for offline, I try to listen to other interviews to make sure I don't, you know, repeat the same questions. And I was like, I really, he did Kara Swisher. I need to listen 
to what he said to Kyra Swisher. And so in the, in the car on the way here, mm-hmm. I turned my phone on and put it on Spotify mm-hmm. and listened to the first two minutes of the Kyra Swisher interview. But after those first two minutes, I was like, not only do I not want to cheat, who cares what or yeah, who cares what yeah, he said to Kara? Yeah, yeah. Figure out what my questions are. And I had the same experience for Pod Save America last Thursday, which hmm. is I get up at five, we record at ten, and from five to ten, I consume every piece of information and every take <laughs> about what Dan and I are going to talk about right, all right, the time. Right. And mostly they're not that helpful. Well, mostly that's what I realized. And so yeah, that Thursday right. I woke up, I sat at my laptop, I prepped for two hours, and then I worked out, hung out with Emily and Charlie, went to work. Uh, sat here and I didn't read anything else. I just quickly checked Slack to see if I missed any breaking news. And it was better because I was like, I'm offering my opinions as that are my opinions mm-hmm. and not the synthesis of everyone else's takes, which is fucking social media's right, problem. Right. So many things that you think you really need it for, you learn. I feel like we learned very quickly that you actually don't. So I cheated in a meaningful way, not counting the like when you need to use the apps to like, you know, I had to use it to like unlock my car, stuff like that, which is like, that's a tough one to learn. Yeah. Um, I cheated twice. Once I was uh, out during the work day. Don't tell my boss. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like waiting for an email. Yeah, we usually notice when someone's gone from this uh, bustling w- office. W- well, you can- <laughs> I mean, if there's one fewer person, that's like a 50% staff reduction. So you would tell, plus you're checking the swipes on the door, right? right? Of yeah, 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 of course. course. Yeah. Um, I was like out during the day at a cafe and something that I did a few times this week was to check my email, drove all the way back to the <laughs> office because I like I wanted to live it. But I was like, I don't want to do that. I just need to check if I got this email. So like popped um, it open yeah. just to check for the email. And of course, when I was on there, I like caught myself cheating for like a minute or two. But then it was like, no, I don't want to do this. The second time was the one where I felt like I really learned something about my smartphone addiction. It was a couple of days ago. So like very late in the week, late in the experiment. And you and I had like spent the day at the office walking around bragging to everyone about how we had like broken our smartphone addiction. I don't even know what a smartphone is anymore. (laughs) I'm on a higher plane of enlightenment. I'm not down there in the muck with you all smartphone addicts feeling very good about myself. And I got home late that night from dinner and I started to feel like not for any particular reason, just like a little sad. Just like it's part of the human experience. You know, sometimes we like feel a little melancholy and I will tell you, the pull for uh, that smartphone was overwhelming. Yeah. That I, I th- really thought I had not felt it even a twinge for days. And all of a sudden, the phone, which was in the next room in the bottom of a bag, switched off with the SIM card out, was like screaming to me. And I, sure enough, I looked down and all of a sudden in my hand, I don't even know I got there, was <laughs> my phone turned on on the Wi-Fi on Instagram checking notifications, checking messages, just like trying to like chase away the feelings. And I realized in that moment, I have been doing this for years, like every day or multiple times a day, which is of course like what addictive behavior is. That as you're forming the addiction, you start like losing the ability to manage feelings in any kind of constructive way. And what you end up doing is you start chasing those dopamine hits through food or alcohol or drugs or your smartphone just to try to get like a 30 second, 90 second reprieve when of course you're not actually resolving or dealing with the feelings. You're just pushing them to the margins like until you can get to like the next hour of your life. I will say two things that that made me think of. Hmm. One, 
Uh, I think I was a little more caffeinated than usual uh, <laughs> last week. Why? <laughs> just, just for an addictive personality. Oh, like I need some. Like you said, I need like that reaching hit. for a substance. Yeah, yeah. So there was a little yeah, bit of that. Yeah. And two, I, think, I was doing a lot more cocaine in the office. Oh too. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's just the culture here. Sure. Um, and then two, I think because I had so so many social engagements scheduled, I didn't have that. Like if I was alone more. And if I was sitting around and feel that boredom, that little sadness when you're alone, I would have done that. Where, where it was for me, so Mondays are like my most stressful days because we have we have the pod uh, and Monday afternoon, Pod Save America. And then for this last Monday, I had the Ben Smith interview Tuesday. So I took home. So I Monday, I come home at like five or six o'clock at night after the pod. I uh, spend time with Emily and Charlie. We put Charlie to bed. I tell Charlie stories. It's 7.30. 7.30, I go downstairs and then I have to like finish Ben's book and prep the questions oh, for the, thing the next yeah, day. Yeah, so it's a stressful yeah, day. Yeah. And I noticed, I didn't cheat, but when I got to the laptop after putting Charlie down, mm. I was like, I found myself checking Twitter so much, right, everything else. Right. And it was like part procrastination, escape. but part like, I'm I'm so stressed out things. and I'm so yeah. tired from the day. Yes. I got to have something for me. Mm-hmm. And 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 but then it didn't make me feel better. No. It makes you feel, I mean that's the the core of addiction is it makes you feel worse, which is why you go back to this. So when I realized I was doing this and like 10 minutes blinked by, I like put down the phone, turned it off and was just like I am just going to like sit with this feeling and just try to like <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was horrible. (laughs) Those like muscles had really atrophied because you had, I mean, think about in the last like five years, how often you've just been like, I'm just going to feel the bad feelings that I'm feeling, which is what you're supposed to do to cope with them. And it is like by far the hardest part of the week. But I feel like in a weird way was the most valuable too. That's the other thing. It's it's a little, it was a little transportive to like Mm. other times of life. Yeah. Partly it's because I was listening to Sirius XM in the car since I didn't have my phone and was like listening to like 90s on nine. Uh, <laughs> listening to some gin blossoms on the way into work today. I mean, that'll give but, anybody some feelings. But, there, but the feeling of not being connected and just thinking about stuff and listening to music, like little things, yeah. it did, I was like, oh, this is what my life used to be like long ago. Or what life used to be <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So our fearless producers and my wife uh, were uh, taking videos of us over the course filming, I guess you call it, whatever what? <laughs> with the phone. <laughs> what uh, over the course of the week, and um, that you know they they caught each of us in a couple different uh, trying moments. Uh, I think we have one of um, uh, Max who uh, was having some trouble figuring out where to go here in his, uh, his new home, <laughs> Los Angeles. Let's listen. So Max, how are you going to get to the Four Seasons? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where this is. Okay. I don't know how to get to it. And Great. I'm going to get in my car and I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't wait. And this um, this meeting is in 25 minutes and I think I'm just not going to be there. I would say send a photo when you get there, but you can't. With what? With, <laughs> I did on the way back from lunch. I like saw a tree that looked nice because I look at things now oh, because good. I don't have a smartphone and I took a shitty picture of it with my flip phone. That's great. Yeah, He's reconnecting with nature. So there's so many parts of this experience that I'm so excited for listeners to reproduce. But one that we really have exclusive here is Carolyn Dunphy just terrorizing us day in (laughs) and day out with a smartphone and like a little bit haranguing us for like messing up, which we I like I did a few times. Um, It's really hard to get around without a smartphone. And that's like as much as I love this experiment, like, you know, Google Maps makes like a nice product. 
And it was really hard to live without. And there's a couple little things like that that I just like are going to be tough to go without. Because like if you don't have Google Maps and you just move to a new city and you're trying to go someplace, it's really hard. Where do all these streets go? I don't know. Yeah, no. I mean, there's there's essentials. I, I need Google Maps. I need I need Postmates. I need uh, my, like I said, our house alarm, Nanit for Charlie, like things like that. I just need the one uh, social media, mm. Twitter, Instagram. I think they may be coming off my phone. Really? Yeah. And All just the check way it on off. the. So, uh, you know, wow. I check it on my laptop when I'm sitting at work because yeah. it's for work. It should yeah, be. Sure, sure. But I don't want it. I don't think I want it anymore. We'll see what I'll see how long it lasts. But um, texting is the one I'm trying to figure out because I genuinely mm. missed texting. And when I'd come back to my computer and there was like 25 texts, first it would get me a little anxious. And second, I would have a little FOMO <laughs> like, what did I miss? Right. right. But then I was, I was talking to my uh, friend Shomik on Sunday and he was like, I've sort of noticed that. He goes, I realize that you not texting is like is resulting in fewer text conversations uh, with all of our friends oh, <laughs> because yeah. you're, because I'm because so addicted so that engaged, I'm always right, like texting right, right, everyone right, all the yeah. time, uh, which, of course, I love to hear. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I do need to figure out how to get back to texting because I, I missed it. Mm-hmm. But that can also really interrupt your yeah. day and your workflow. It's true. Yeah. And yeah. I don't need people just like I don't need to be distracted by text conversations while I'm trying to do something else. So that I want to figure out. I've been thinking about that too. I Something I realized this week is there's a lot of relationships that I keep up digitally mostly. And I was like really not present for those this week. And Same. like people were very understanding because I'm, you know, doing this thing. They listen to the show. But I like, you know, I don't want to like lose those relationships yeah. as I'm cutting out all the things that are horrible for that, me. That nodded me a little bit. So speaking of important relationships. I understand that uh, your son had some thoughts about the offline challenge this week. What I hadn't realized is that at this age, like Charlie really absorbs everything. And so I was at work and Emily and Charlie were like taking a video because they were going to cook something. And out of the blue, Charlie just said, Come into dad's phone. Where is dad's phone? Did it get shut down? Yeah. Why? Because he uses it too much. He's just doing an experiment about if he can go a whole week without his phone. Do you think he can do it? Yeah. You do? No. (laughs) (laughs) Devastating no from Char. A kid knows you. A kid knows you. So that was like day one, right? Yeah, oh yeah, day two. So yeah, the first day after. immediately. Noticed that I didn't have my phone. I bet, I bet that, I bet you felt that something hurt. there. That yeah. hurt. Yeah. So, yeah, because so he sees it... me on my phone all the time. Because he, he had gotten to the point, I think like the week before this, where he was starting to like take my phone as like a joke because he knows, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and he, he thought I could like chase him and stuff like that. That's his, his brother. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so he noticed. But honestly, it was, it was much better because I, I have tried to make it a practice that when I'm with Charlie and I'm playing with Charlie, I don't look at my phone. But, and I'm pretty good about that, but it's not perfect. And it doesn't no. sound like it. <laughs> yeah, you're, when you're around all the time, it's yeah. just, it's like tough. But for these days, I, I did. And I was just like with him all the time. And it was, really? it was, it was great. What was he saying by the end of the week? <laughs> he does, he has not said anything. Oh, I, I think I said today that I'm getting my phone back and it didn't, it didn't really register. Cause you know what he said? He's uh, every morning now, he's like, I want to watch um, YouTube videos on your laptop. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Which is a real problem. <laughs> but I set a timer for anywhere from three to five minutes, and he sits okay. on my lap, and he watches okay. a video, and I'm checking email. Screen time restrictions. And it's a nice, yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. nice little thing. Yeah. It's a nice little thing. Well, I don't know. If it gave you some more time with your son, that seems like a pretty significant upside. I'm telling you, all the social 
aspects of this were it's incredible incredibly beneficial and, and, and personal yeah and personal yeah all right are we uh should we have uh dumpy come back in to to judge us and give us the next uh give us the next challenge let's do it all right sofas recliners love seats everything is better in leather discover the new leather collection at ashley where bold meets durable and wait a minute who's been finger painting on the couch again that's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's... Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. Caroline, give us back our phones. <laughs> or don't. Welcome. They're, they're don't. Sitting, yep, they're, they're, they're sitting right here, but we have to get through another low-budget parody. Oh. So. Yes. Greetings. Gentlemen, I mean survivors. <laughs> <laughs> a show I have not seen since the early 2000s. Same. Where same. are the tiki torches? Well, those are they. They died with Charlottesville. They could not. <laughs> you think we're going to bring tiki torches? Yeah, it's yeah. Fair. You think yeah, we're going to bring tiki yeah. torches into this liberal company, Max? Canceled along with Jeff Probst. No, he's not canceled, is he? I don't think so. He's. Ca- I'm thinking of Chris Harrison. We're googling right that's away. Another, like, I yeah, think we just did. Show. I think he's off. For all the sub- R.I.P. Yeah, for all the Survivor fans out there, uh, Jeff is not canceled, <laughs> and we're going to keep the show going. Okay. A show I've not seen since a man burned his face and hands and had to be airlifted out. And then my mom said I could never watch this show anymore. That makes sense. So for those of you watching the YouTube, I am wearing a hat that says Survivor Parody, a Dickies, uh, I would say royal blue. It's extremely blue. Bowling uniform (laughs) and a turtle necklace. Is that what they wear? Yeah, I don't Survivor? understand. I would, Who I wears would that on Survivor? So. Okay. You know, ironically, in hindsight bias, a bandana would have worked fine. A okay. bandana would have worked fine. And uh, <laughs> here we are. We dove in a little too far, but watch the YouTube. We love a shameless plug. What? I'm here for it. What is this in relation to? <laughs> <laughs> Yet to be determined. Okay. Yet to be determined. Tribe map quest. You talk a good game. I do. I t- yeah. You talk a good game. You're Uh-oh. like I'm forever changed, but we'll see. Tell me about your week, cheater. Uh, <laughs> I did not cheat. Okay. I needed my phone. On the phone. record, you didn't cheat. Right now, you did not cheat. I had. I had to. Well, okay. The, other than the times okay. we talked about before, I did Sounds not cheat. Sounds like a cheater. I needed to unlock my car. I okay. needed an app to get into my car to drive away. Tribe Peppa Pig. Yes. It seems that phone ad- muddy puddles. Yes. <laughs> I've heard famously that you've seen every single episode. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan of Peppa Pig. 
tell you a lot about dino trucks. Too. Yep, I, I bet. <laughs> basically, construction videos on YouTube. Boom. Great. I'm an expert. <laughs> Team construction videos. <laughs> it seems that phone addiction runs in the family. Mm. How do you feel about giving this to your spawn? <laughs> <laughs> this being the the disease of smartphone addiction. Yes, the disease of I'm, smartphone. I'm trying addiction. to wean him off. Which I've yeah. been, uh, yeah. Over the last week, it's like, wow, he really has can't. He's got to go away from these screens. I don't want him to end up like me. You know? Unfortunately, Apple does not fall far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you can do with psychological mimicking. <laughs> now, gentlemen, I mean tribes, the offline producers and I, tribe self control, have taken to a vote. Tribe map quest. Yes. Congratulations. <gasps> you will receive the advantages for the next what? round. What? Oh, how did In I lose? your face. Tribe Peppa Pig. And I did it with cheating twice. How do you guys... You, no one has counted up the minutes. It's all very scientific, John. <laughs> Listen, don't, we haven't turned the phones on. Well, okay. well, listen to Stop the Steal over <laughs> yeah. here. Okay, yeah. You're what gonna, happened to trust in institutions? Accosting Jesus. the Dominion voting machines. Yeah, it was the Dominion voting machines that can, made you lose. He, the ghost of Hugo Chavez. <laughs> yeah. Once again. He just keeps appearing in offline. I don't know why. Come to my rescue, cyber ninjas. <laughs> Try Peppa Pig. Mm -hmm. Pack your bags. Because unfortunately, the Friends of the Pod subscription offline channel is correct. This is a coup. Max is now the host of offline. <laughs> R.I.P. Great, I can spend more time on my phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, With I, your son. <laughs> I did announce on the, the subscriber Discord this week that you had become so enlightened that you had floated off into the clouds right. and were no longer, no longer associated with the program anymore. And I, was I wasn't on over. the subscriber Discord because, you know, you know don't I'm, use I'm computers. trying to spend less time online. But he will be this week, and that's why everyone should subscribe to the Friends of the Pod. Subscribe. It's great stuff. Which does not count for the purposes of smartphone addiction. Correct. Little known fact. <laughs> wow, no. okay. Yeah, little, okay. <laughs> little known fact. And speaking of mindfulness, so everyone, take, take one breath with me. And with that, welcome back to your iPhones. Oh, thanks. How does it feel? It feels fine. Actually, it's... it's I, well, feel, I, I, feel I had actually, I had actually a, a, a little pang of... Anxiety because all the badges, and I'm like, I gotta check things. I actually was, I saw all the <laughs> red turn dots it off again, and like, didn't really care. Kind of washed Ew. over me. Although, here, I, now, I just want to be competitive now. Okay. We, well, how many We're minutes like every day time? did okay. we do screen okay, time? Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, that's great. Can we just do that? Yeah. So, my if the average isn't gonna work because we went Wednesday to Wednesday, which is tough. So, we can't do, we can't get a full week. Oh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. Sucks. Yeah. But that's okay. Um, so tell us your average before the challenge started, though. Remind us. It was 3 yes. million hours a day? 3 yeah. million. <laughs> Pretty close about, to that. About that. Um, Pretty close to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see. Week. Uh, what was this? I get, well, let, why don't I give you mine while you pull it up? My average was, just to remind people, was 4 hours and 38 minutes a day. After we started the challenge, the first day was 18 minutes. Mm. And I don't think I popped above that any other day this week. Some days it was five. Okay, okay. Uh, so, again, for me... Uh, Who lost? The week before... Well, we're about to find out, uh, since apparently there was some fucking shady business going on with the judges. <laughs> you know what? You can't... Don't blame the voting machine. Blame the player. I'm taking this to the court, court that please, I designed. Please, that, <laughs> that rumor about the we'll postal settle. truck full of ballots, totally false. Totally right. groundless. Like getting Harlan Crow involved. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're so happy the, to settle. The week before... 
It was six hours and 12 minutes <gasps> a day. Oh, my God. Okay, so on Thursday, you said 18. I was 17. <gasps> uh, on Friday, nine minutes. Nice. On Saturday, one minute. Oh, my God. On Sunday, 13 seconds. Wow. wow. On Monday, five minutes. Yesterday, four minutes. Love and to today, see seven minutes. Amazing. Okay. Good for you. Good for you. What about what are your pickups? All right. Pickups. Uh, today was one. Good. <laughs> wow. Uh, yesterday was four. Monday was two. And this is Sunday down. was zero. That's good. Zero on Sunday. And this is down from He's before the challenge guy. started, like 280. I right? know. Saturday was zero also. Whoa. Wow. Friday was nine. And Thursday was 14. So mine were around like 21, 20, 15, 14. I was using. I clearly won this challenge. <laughs> you clearly uh, have not. <laughs> the tribe is still spoken, regardless if we have tiki this. torches or not. But now I feel like we should have gotten the torches and run you out of the studio. <laughs> but the point it down like 90%, like immediately, 95%. And stayed there. Right. Which is, I think, pretty pretty cool. Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty great. Yeah. I think for for the first challenge, you guys probably knocked this out of the park. And by probably, I mean, I'll give you a little bit of credit. You, I, I, was, I am pleasantly surprised. Doesn't come easily for you. No. Which and I know. dare I say, I am proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> which also doesn't wow. come easily either. John, are you going to keep the flip phone, do you think? No, I think the flip phone is useless. Uh, <laughs> you mean this, the F1 Sunbeam? Yeah, or whatever. Uh, this is the burner phone that Emma had to get for, for me because the flip phone, the first one wouldn't work. These things are useless, but I do want to change my phone. I might, I might delete a few apps off my phone. Ooh, mm. some spr- Breaking news. I might delete Twitter and Instagram no and TikTok way. all off my phone I'll believe it when I see it. I know. I'll believe it when I see it. I found that the flip phone totally useless totally unsustainable for more than a week at a time but i might actually keep it and like change out the sim card every couple of months Mm. and just doing like a week i really feel like the lasting effects of that and i feel like honestly i will probably need it in a couple of months and something that is great about the flip phone because you can change out the sim cards is i am now like bullying everyone in my life Mm. to take like a one week flip phone challenge so i can like lend the phone out to them and they can use it for a week and it will be on their number and then they can like pass it to another friend and so i'm becoming a little bit of a flip phone cult Leader. Yeah, I've been doing some bullying. That's great. Yeah. You know, and speaking of bullying, <laughs> I have been slacking our producers right now in real time. Unfortunately, the tribe has spoken again. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> you no. are the winner. Yeah. No. Real advantages. You are the winner. Oh, my real God. advantages to this run is the company. This 2000 Supreme Court. <laughs> it's a flip. Yeah. This is, the, this is your hanging Chad's moment. <laughs> This is, your this is a travesty. Yeah. I will not be suspending my yeah. campaign. Yeah. I will be taking this to the courts, to the streets, if no, necessary. Gonna... Please don't make, please don't make us recount Florida. Please don't make us do that. I, the Max Fisher heads in the Discord, are going to be in up in arms about this, in yeah. an uproar. Come to the courtyard to see Max later today. Will be wild. Will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bring boy. your tiki torches. Yeah, bring your tiki torches. Welcome, yeah. tiki torches. Welcome at uh, crooked.com/store. <laughs> so let me walk you through this next challenge. Okay. So it's going to be in three parts. The first part is we've downloaded an app that you have to take a full breath hmm. before your most addictive application on your phone, which I am assuming for both of you is. Twitter. 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 It has Twitter. to be Twitter. So you're going to take a full breath before Twitter. Mm. 
The second part is you will have to do a seven-minute meditation each morning hmm. before you pick up your phone. Seven minutes? Huh. Wow. It's actually short. You know, most people, like David Lynch does 20, so I think you could do seven. <laughs> All, right. All right, I'm in. I'm in. Not I'd that you don't have to be as weird as David Lynch. I'd but say I'm at about a third of a David Lynch, yeah. I would say... Point three David I Lynch say, units. I think you're closer than you think. That is that is the kindest and meanest thing anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> you're welcome. I told you I was mean. <laughs> I told you I was mean. So the idea of the meditation, I gather, is to kind of like reconfigure your relationship to your phone and like make it feel a little bit more, a little healthier and less impulsive. Correct. Is that right? okay. It's about taking a step back, okay. pretending that you're on an island without technology, possibly fighting for $50,000 on a reality TV show <laughs> is what we're trying I like to it. I like it. possibly do a satirical parody of and make you kind of disconnect but reconnect a different relationship with your phone. Okay. And the third, because we, we uh, switched winners a little last minute. <laughs> Bullshit. It's fine. I have a background in improv. I can work with this. <laughs> I'm not yes-anding this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Classic stand-up over here. Of course you're a podcaster. <laughs> I've never seen that before. A stand-up guy doing a podcast. <laughs> and the third part is that we're going to change the wallpaper on your phone. Okay. So since you won, you will get... A, a wallpaper of your producer uh, Emma giving you a mindfulness message like keep it up good job okay. you will have a very scary photo of our <laughs> other producer Austin who is basically shaming you every time you open your phone wow wow what is he what is he saying to me well luckily for you guys I have the photos right here so these are the these are the desktop we're gonna oh so it's a way God. to stay unplugged <laughs> So that, that's the reward and is Emma. put down your phone. Wow, he looks so angry. He, he does. does. I've never Austin. seen Austin look that angry. I've never seen an angry face from Austin. You know, and he's a Midwest boy, so he really had to try to really look dig. upset. Yeah. He had yeah. to dig deep for this character. So every time we pick up our phones, John is going to see <laughs> Emma being encouraging and kind, and I'm going to see Austin being mean and scolding. Correct. Correct. Oh, I love it. And just like last week, there will be a winner and loser. Hopefully we won't have to flip it like this time, but... Who's to say? We got to keep you guys on your toes. We got to keep the listeners on their toes. We got to keep the watchers on their toes. How much did John pass you under the table here? I, I, I don't know what you're. <laughs> I, wasn't on my I don't phone. know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't have the laptop. Uh-huh, Hands uh-huh. free. I'm gonna find the Hunter Biden laptop that's got the secrets of what what actually went Just down. Just check here. the Venmo transactions; it'll be right there <laughs> for public, you. Yeah. Max will be speaking more at uh, Four Seasons Total Landscaping exactly. <laughs> right after this. And we'll have <laughs> just just black <laughs> black dye dripping down his chin. Yeah, um, we love it. So just like last week, there will be winners and losers. We will track your progress, and by that I mean we will continue to stalk you. And whoever wins will receive an advantage for the next challenge. And we will also, I think, have for people who want to follow along this week, which everybody will be able to do, we're going to tweet out guidelines for the meditation, the app we can use, right. maybe also the background desktops if people want to have that on yeah. their phones. If they want to have it, take it. Take and it. I, w- I would really love for people to try it out this week and to let us know how it goes. And each sure. week we're going to actually be clipping out uh, the rules of each challenge so that anyone can follow along as well. So check out Crooked Media on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, and send us a voice note. Send us an email at offline at cricket dot com. There you go. Comments, questions, concerns. Exactly. So We'd love to hear from you. Try uh, try Peppa Pig. Try yeah, MadQuest. Let, let us know if you think maybe the election was fraudulent here <laughs> yes. and stolen. And, yeah, just and... give us give us give us a read on that. We just want to see. So try Peppa Pig. Try MadQuest. Good luck. 
and please do not burn your hands and face in the fire like that one guy in the 2000s, and then my mom won't let me work here anymore. <laughs> that is sage <laughs> advice. Nama- Thank you, Jeff Probst. N- Namaste. <laughs> Terrifying as always. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn Dumphy. Thank you, uh, Ben Smith, for joining Offline today. Thank you, Max, for uh, going on this journey with me last week. And uh, looking forward to the next challenge. Bye, guys. See you. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.